When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. The 82-game preseason is in the books, and it's finally time for the real season. Don't miss out on any of the NBA playoff action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. From the play-in tournament through the finals, DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with same-game parlays, live betting, odds, and so much more. As the first round continues on, you can bet sides, totals, player props, everything at your disposal over on DraftKings. All you have to do, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SHUFFLE. New customers bet 5 and get $200 in bonus bets instantly. That's code SHUFFLE only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino. Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. This is the GM Shuffle. He's the defensive coach. <laughs> they had the worst defense in football last year. Howie's 12th. Is he ahead of Tomlin, too? He is one spot ahead of Tomlin, who comes in at 13. Jesus Christ. I mean, throw the thing in the trash, please. You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. Here is Femi Abebefe. Welcome to another edition of the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. I'm your host, Femi Abebefe. Michael, the NFL news and notes just do not stop. Wow. I mean, it's it's the greatest thing ever. I mean, NBA playoffs, no big deal. Here we come, NFL. Mm-hmm. We got more stuff to talk about than ever. It's wonderful. I mean, it, it is now a 12-month-a-year job. It is. You can cover this game, and there's so much intrigue to it. There's so much going on that even Daniel Snyder's not in the news cycle now. Can you imagine that? Oh, just give it a couple of weeks. He'll get back into there. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Snyder will get back into there some way, somehow. As always, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. Tweet at us at MLombardiNFL is where you can find Michael. At Femi Abebefe is where you can find me. Uh, our producer, Stephen Bond, not with us today. John Goulet, our program director here at VEASAN, filling in for the great Stephen Bond. So he's putting on the producer hat once again here for us. So uh, it should be a fun show and we have to start, Michael, with a not-so-fun topic. Deshaun Watson, I'm sure you caught this. The New York Times put out a report a couple days ago about Deshaun Watson and what has been going on that was not uncovered with the masseuses and all the alleged uh, the civil suits and all that sort. But the New York Times report, Michael, this came out here not too long ago, and it said that Deshaun Watson, he had publicly said that he had 40 different th- massage therapists across five years in Houston. Well, the Times report found out that he booked appointments with at least 66 different women in just 17 months from the fall of 2019 
through the spring of 2021. There are now two additional civil suits that have been filed, bringing that total to 24. The Houston Texans are now being implicated in this as well as they were almost helping him uh, with the facility where the, the, some of these mas massages would take place here. With everything that we saw from this New York Times report, I'm sure you read it. I read it last night. I saw the experts earlier in the week. What was your reaction when you found out another chapter of this unfortunate situation? Well, for me, uh, Femi, I, I can't imagine that, that the New York Times knows more about this case than the National Football League, the Houston Texans, and specifically the, Green, the, the Cleveland Browns. I mean, the first rule when you enter scouting, you know, when you go into the mafia, you're watching The Sopranos now. When you mm -hmm. enter the mafia, you have to take this blood oath, right? You prick your finger and you swear to the family. When you enter into scouting, the, the first rule you learn, the first rule you learn that you have to agree to is that you will know more about the player before you draft him than after you draft him. That, that's the first rule of scouting. We're, we're going to know everything about this guy, you know, down to how much toilet paper he goes through a month to before we draft him. And for me to wrap my hands around, and I think Jenny Ventross, I think that's her name. Yep. She does a wonderful job. She's a great reporter. If she's doing this at a higher level than the Texans, than a higher level than the NFL, than a higher level than the Cleveland Browns, there's something wrong with the system. Look, if you're the Cleveland Browns, right, and you're interested, and you've known you might be interested since the, the end of the season, or actually since the begin middle of the season, when Baker Mayfield's throwing interceptions, you got to say to yourself, we got to go after Watson. All right, so go hire Jim Rockford, 200 a day plus expensive. Not bad, right? Get him in his little, get him, you know, go out there and start investigating the case. Like, you start investigating the case. Hire two private eyes. Hire Bo Diddley, the guy that does this, the, the, the Arby's commercial. Do something, right? Right? Do mm -hmm. something. Like, I got to find – I'm not making this decision until I know everything. And for them to plead ignorance, well, we didn't know this, or that allegedly plead I, – I find that hard to believe. I find that malpractice if that's the case. Andrew Barry, how does he – how does Deep Podesto or Barry keep their jobs if this is true? Like it, that's your job is to, you're in the information business. Every mistake I've made in my career, and there's a lot of them I've made because I didn't have the right, I didn't have enough information. I was, I, I violated the first rule of scouting. Mm -hmm. And to me, when you're putting 230 million of coin on the table, you, you can't violate it. Yeah. So to me, it almost looks like they didn't want to know the information. If we're to believe what's being reported that the Browns may have not known, the NFL, that Watson may have lied to them, they might have not have known everything that was in this New York Times article. It almost feels like to me that they didn't really want to know because the desperation, like you mentioned, midway through the season of, hey, we got to find a way to get a better quarterback to take us to the next level here. And I really wonder what the quote-unquote due diligence was that they were talking about at the introductory press conference because – if this is now coming out and it's some sort of surprise or there's two more civil suits now that are out, if they didn't know that it was 24 women, we, I mean, at this point, I'm like, I don't know how many more there could come of this here. I mean, there's still a long time between now and training camp. It almost feels like they were just so desperate for a quarterback that they may have turned the other cheek. No, they can't turn. You can't, you can't turn the other cheek on this. I get desperation. Look, you know, everybody's desperate for a quarterback when you don't have one. But there's desperation and there's ignorance. This is ignorant. And, and, I, and I'm saying, to me, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt up until this point, is I can't believe that a billion-dollar industry mm -hmm. is 
is this is has this kind of malpractice that they're going to turn their cheek? We're talking about serious, serious offenses. As much as I want to go and believe Deshaun Watson, as much as I love him as a player, I have to separate that from the reality of what I'm dealing with. And and I have a hard time understanding how any sense of desperation that could enter into that. And then you turn around and set a record. You basically do the first fully funded guaranteed contract in the history of the NFL. So not only do you double down on you put all the chips in the middle of the table. You can't do that if you don't have this. So I'm saying the Browns have to know about this. I'm saying whatever Jenny's reporting, the league has to know. The league has – this is not we're, – we're selling it as it's blindsiding everybody. Mm-hmm. I, I'm saying I don't buy that. It can't blindside everybody. Like, she's a great reporter, but she can't be better than what the league has funded-wise. I mean, you hire these people to do a job. I want the answer. I need the answer. Like, I, I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that. How much of this falls, and in my opinion, I think this is the first person that should be questioned, is the owner, Jimmy Haslam. To me, it almost the, – the sense that I get from just watching from outside is that Jimmy Haslam wanted Deshaun Watson. He wanted an upgraded quarterback and told Andrew Barry, the general manager, told the entire front office, go get this done by any means necessary. Because initially – the Browns were in it, then they were out, then they upped the ante going to the fully guaranteed thing. That's when Watson said, okay, I'll come to Cleveland. This, to me, it almost feels like, was Barry just the facilitator of, okay, my boss wants this to get done. What, regardless, whatever I think, I have to get him. Otherwise, that's my ass. Well, you know, the other person involved here is, is Haslam's wife, D, And so D is sensitive to these things as much as anybody. He sleeps with her every night. Like, I mean, they, they're not only partners in running this team, they're partners in life. They're having daily conversations. I, I can't imagine that Jimmy could tell somebody, ignore everything, just get me the quarterback, when his wife has been very outspoken, has been very demonstrative about, as well she should be, about, about protecting women. I, I find it hard to put my head around. It's an easy narrative to go down. I, I mm-hmm. don't buy it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's easy to blame Jimmy Haslam. I'm not going to do it because his wife is running the team more than he is. And so you you got to answer to her, too. He, he's not going to a meeting without her. Like, she's protecting her vested interest in this club, too. So I, I think that's, that's, that narrative doesn't work. I, I'm, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. To me, they've got to know, just like Houston has to know. Now, it sells more newspapers. It gets more clicks. If we pretend that they don't know or the league doesn't know, and maybe they don't, and that may be right. I don't know. But I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. I mean, this is we're talking about serious cash. We're talking about really – we're talking about – think about this, Femi. We're going to talk about later this block. I mean, the $240 million that he got guaranteed is more than Robert Kraft paid for the Patriots. It's more than Jeff Lurie paid for the Eagles. Right? I mean, yeah. it, it's so – like, you're talking about serious cash. But I guess the the reason why I'm hung up on it is because how do you know all of this information that's in this report? And there might be more information that they know that Jenny Ventress or the rest of us don't know. How do you know all of that information and still take this gamble knowing that a potential suspension and not even suspension, just the alleged acts are just so vile that why take that sort of risk? Well, I, I, I guess you're believing what he said at the deposition. Like, he didn't even know why he was being questioned. That was Watson's. Yeah. That was That's Watson. what he said. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know why I'm even here. 
And so I don't know all the evidence. I, I mean, I, I've learned in life, and thank, and Al Davis drilled this into me, is I don't believe everything I read. I just don't. I don't believe everything. I think there's agenda to everything. And I'm not saying there's an agenda here, but I don't know all the facts. I, I have no idea. I'm assuming the Browns do because they guarantee $240 million. Maybe that's the wrong assumption I could make. Mm-hmm. But obviously, you know, obviously there's something here that's just not copacetic. And, you know, he, he hasn't settled this. He, did, he never he had an opportunity to settle these civil suits and he didn't. Yeah. And, and that the civil suits, it's if they're not settled, they won't be tried until after this NFL season. So we're not even going to get some sort of. Uh, I don't know how he this. plays it's, this year. I don't know how he plays this year. Yeah, that's where I'm at too. I, I, I mean, I don't know how he plays. I don't know how there's, you know, there's going to be. I mean, Goodell's in a very challenge. I mean, if he says six games, that's not going to be enough. Oh, he's if he gonna says get eight games, he's going to get killed. The, you know, the, the league's talking about making protecting women, and you know, and and he's. I mean, does he have any choice but to suspend him for the year? That that to me it seems like that's what we're staring at is. At first, a couple of weeks ago, I was saying eight games. I could see that. Maybe he gets suspended for 10. They appeal it down to eight or six or what have you. But the more and more stuff keeps coming out, it's just so – the league doesn't want to have to deal with this and does does not want this to be hanging over as the cloud of the NFL season coming up in 2022. I think this is going to be a full season, and they're going to wait until this thing gets resolved, whether it's their settlements or they try it in the civil case – because right now it it doesn't look good, and I I just can't get past Cleveland making this sort of a risk, not only financially, but what you give up draft pick wise to go out and get somebody who's being accused of these things. Now this is all alleged, like we this is all alleged, like we don't know what exactly happened, but for there's to be this many accusations and this many civil suits, and to feel comfortable enough to still trade for all of that stuff and pay all that money. Maybe they know something that we don't know, but man, that to me, even if you do know something we don't know, I don't know if I, there, he's not the only good player that's in the NFL. Like there's other players who are good at quarterback as well to take that sort of risk. Yeah. I, but it's, but it's here it's on much. our network on, on VEASAN and on DraftKings, this lends itself to an opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, how do you not take the Browns on the under? I mean, yeah. how do you not? Jacoby Brissett's the backup. You got to feel like at this point on, on, July the on June the 9th that there's there's a good chance he's not going to play. They're not a great team without a great quarterback. So how is he going to play? I mean, I, I think the unders in play. I think Pittsburgh's, you know, whether Trubisky's the starter, which they say he will be, can they be improved? I mean, Mike Tomlin seems to find a way to win games no matter what. You know, uh, we, we know that uh, Cincinnati's a good team, right? Mm-hmm. And so Baltimore's going to be improved with their quarterback. back. How do you not take the under here? I mean, I know this is kind of, you know, they're, they're, this is a little bit, you know, we're talking about something very serious that we're talking about betting, but th- betting is about what? Information. Yeah. Right? I mean, that that's why Jimmy the Greek became Jimmy the Greek, right? You know that story. Jimmy the Greek sat there and said, okay, you know, his he grew a mustache and his sister said, oh, women don't like men with mustaches. And, and so he said, really? Yeah. Well, Thomas Dewey was running for president that time. And so he had a mustache and he was the prohibitive favorite. So Jimmy the Greek hired three women to stand in front of the shopping mall, a, a, a grocery store in Steubenville, Ohio, and asked women as they're coming in, do you like men with mustaches? Overwhelmingly, the information came back to him as no. So he put 10 grand down on, 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 on Harry Truman. 
and won $180,000 back in 1940-something. And, and that's how he became Jimmy the Greek. But he only became Jimmy the Greek through information. Mm -hmm. That's what's the power of betting, information. And so, to me, we know, based on the information we have, I don't see how Watson plays this year. I bet the under. Yeah, and we don't see the win total at many shops. I mean, here at Circa, they have it posted. I was surprised to learn that they even have it posted. I didn't even look. I'm surprised because, it's on the board, yeah, Femi. I think I, they I, would take it off the board. That's what I thought. Other places have not posted the Cleveland Browns win total. There's still like the division markets, the conference market, the Super Bowl markets. All those are up, but none of the win totals have been up except for here at the Circa. So to me, the under probably is a solid look or maybe betting on one of the other teams to win the division, whether it's Cincinnati, Baltimore, or Pittsburgh, because right now Cleveland is being – lined as one of the co-favorites in that division. I believe they're 200 plus 200 or so to win that division. I mean, that's not going to be the case if Deshaun Watson is missing the entire 2022 season. Now, we don't know that that's what the suspension is going to be, but we can speculate and based off of all the tea leaves that we're reading and all the reports that are coming out, this to me feels like it's going to be a very, very lengthy suspension, which is going to massively impact what the Cleveland Browns are able to do the rest of the way here because Jacoby Brissett, whether you like him or you love him, He's not going to be what Deshaun Watson could be for this Browns team, and that's what right now the odds are indicating is that Watson yeah. will be playing a large portion of these games, which I find hard to believe. And, and Baker Mayfield's not going to be playing because oh, Baker yeah, Mayfield's can, not going to come him. in and try to rescue them. I mean, he's yeah. you know, why would he do that? No, I and, and look, Jacoby Brissett's had an opportunity to lead the Colts, and he couldn't get that done. And he had an opportunity to lead Miami, and he couldn't get that done. So I, I, I know Cleveland's probably a better team than the Colts were two years ago or and the, the Miami was last year. But it's going to be hard to carry them. It's going to be really hard to, to think they're going to go over it to get 10 wins. I think that's a challenge. Yeah, it's a really good challenge. Let's leave it at that and take a quick break because I want to ask you about the new ownership group that we have here in the NFL. This is the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi. All right, Michael, let's get to the football on the field here. And in just a bit, I want to get your thoughts on the top 10 coaches in the NFL, Pro Football Focus put out a list earlier this week and drum up some controversy. And I want to get your thoughts on what those top 10 coaches are and who you think was left off and who you think should not be on the list. But first, let's get to the Denver Broncos. This has been a story out in the Rocky Mountains all offseason. The Denver Broncos looking to sell the team to the highest bidder, and they found themselves a pretty high bidder there. The Denver Broncos going for $4.65 billion, billion with a B, to the Walton Penner family, the Walton family, the, the heirs of the Walmart situation there. So the Walton Penner family buying the Broncos for more than double what the Carolina Panthers went for back in 2018. David Tepper bought them for $2.3 billion, $4.65 billion. As big as that number is, Michael, maybe I'm crazy, but I thought they would go for at least $5 billion just because I think every NFL franchise is worth so much here, but a pretty big score there for the Denver Broncos. Wow. You know, I thought $5 billion would be it. I wouldn't be surprised if the number's a little bit on the lighter side. Uh, I, I, I think, because look, I mean, I don't know how you make money at a $5 billion note, but when you have $81 billion sitting in the bank, I don't think, you know, a billion here or a billion there is really going to matter. Uh, good for the Broncos. It's one of the great fan bases. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the Kroenke family basically will own most of all the professional sports team or the Walmart family will own most of the special sports teams in Colorado. So it's good for them. Uh, it, it's great for their, their, to have some stability and ownership as they've been going through this Pat Bowlin transformation. It'll be interesting to see what he does to the franchise. I don't think he's going to come. I mean, they've actually got a really good structure. They hired a new coach, got a good general manager. You know, they're running the team effectively. 
they need a better facility, a practice facility. It's kind of small and outdated. But other than that, I mean, this should be a team on the rise, and and he can carry it moving forward. So it, it, it's a great look. The, the, the thing about these NFL franchises are they're all money makers, mm-hmm. and what we're seeing in college football is a reflection of how wealthy men can't get into pro football. This is why you see guys take over college programs because they that's where they can have more influence because they don't have the twenty billion laying in the bank to come in, but they have enough to help a college program. And I, I think this is a very small, exclusive club. And it's like having the greatest beachfront property in the world. These franchises will just continue to rise, rise, rise. Yeah, no, it's one of the – you can be rich, but that doesn't get you in in itself there. So, like you mentioned, it is a very, very exclusive club. The Denver Broncos now in the top five of the most valued NFL franchise. The Dallas Cowboys at $6.5 billion, The New England Patriots at $5 billion. You think, don't you think that now has to be readjusted? I mean, like – if the Broncos go for four two, it's like the it's like the wide receiver market, right? <laughs> Once Christian Kirk got eighteen million a year, Cooper Cup's going to get his huge deal, right? Yeah. So like, once the Broncos are valued at four six billion, the Patriots have to be worth seven and a half billion. The yeah. Cowboys, you know, I mean, those numbers are all fluctuated based on the last sale. Yeah, and, and, and the fact that they never come up. The question is, how much would the Washington Football Team go for it? The commanders, like if they went on the market, you know, I think they went for like 800 million when Snyder bought them, you know, mm-hmm. and Jack Kent Cook, I think he, the, the son went to like 770, that was the most he could go to. It, it didn't go to a billion. I mean, that Washington football team is such a prestigious franchise in terms of being in the nation's capital. It's got to go for, it, it's going to go for five and a half billion if he has to sell it. Yeah. Cause this list that I'm looking at right now, this was, a year ago, the Broncos were valued at 3.75. They go for nearly a billion dollars more than that. So to go to your point there, these franchises are going to go higher than what they're valued at by Forbes or whoever does the valuations there. I mean, the Jones family would never sell, but the Cowboys, if they were to sell, I'm thinking it's probably going to be nine, $10 billion based on the stadium and the, the brand and all that goes on with the glitz and glamour of being the Dallas Cowboys. So yeah, to me, the, these, these uh, franchises, uh, as uh, high as those values are, they're going to go for even more. I mean, and they're going to go up, right? So I think what we see in the NBA, like the NBA's ratings have not been very good. The NBA's a P- a fan, you know, it hasn't been great, right? But where the NBA owners are, are, are making their wealth is because of their international, mm-hmm. the, the international rights, whether it's India, whether it's Australia, whether it's China, whether it's Europe. I mean, that, that money that pools in there helps offset some of the things that have gone on here in the States. Yeah. And the NFL doesn't have that. So what is the NFL doing? To see, you know, They see the NBA making all this money in other countries and really having a great revenue stream coming in. So what does the NFL do? The NFL says, okay, we're going to start playing games in Germany because the NFL knows mm-hmm. Germany loves American football. When, when the World League play there, they had Frankfurt. They had a team in Munich and Berlin. I mean, I think they had three teams, I think three or four teams in there. And they all sold and they, and the, they came to the games. Like that's a huge revenue stream for the NFL and their ownership group and for the players. And they're going to tap into it just like the NBA has tapped into those off those other markets. Great day for the Broncos. Might not have been a great day for John Elway. I'm sure you saw this here. Elway yeah. back in the day was offered a minority stake in the Broncos while he was still playing. I think it was around the time he was wrapping up his career at the end of the whole offers, because he was offered additionally about 10%, then another 10% there. So pretty much he was offered 20% of the team. 
which for $36 million could have turned into $900 million with this sale here. If you're John Elway, you have a pretty great life. You're a legend in Colorado. You're an NFL legend, but that's got to be a bad beat to steal a phrase from our guys here at VSIN. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I look, Al Davis was, was – I mean, there's a lot of things that Al Davis was obsessed with, uh, to say the least. You know, the <laughs> zone-blocking scheme of the Broncos with Shanahan. The uh, the bootleg with with the Shanahan, but more than anything, and you can go back and look at his quotes. He swore he swore they were circumventing the cap with the Elway contract and what they were promising Elway and what he wasn't get accounted for. And, and I don't think he was. You know, I'm not saying they did something illegal, but it seemed like it. And this deal mm-hmm. that came, he could have he was owed 21 million, and they wanted to give it to him in, in ownership, which is is the cap, right? Yep. I mean, anytime you give a player anything, it, it's to the cap. So this story to me isn't about what Elway lost. Is it really? If you want to be an investigative reporter, is did they violate the cap? Where's that story? Yep. Like, how did this? Tra- did he get the 21 million, and was it accounted for? And was it part of the cap? Did they get charged for it? Because I promise you, I, I can go back and look at it. Davis had numerous quotes about them manufacturing money in the cap. And this story kind of is the tip of the iceberg to that and the way Boland was kind of manipulating the franchise. And so, you know, obviously Elway was promised something because he came in and ran the team, right? Mm-hmm. He, wanted to, he wanted to be a football executive. Now, I don't know what, he, what, what this means. He was supposed to be part of the next ownership group. Walton yeah. made sure that didn't happen. <laughs> that that definitely did not happen for John Elway there. But like we said, he's doing really well. He's got steakhouses and car dealerships. He's a legend out there in Colorado. Um, I don't think he's hurting for cash anytime soon. In New England, though, I know you definitely saw this. This came out earlier this week that Matt Patricia, who last year was serving as sort of a consultant role there. Make sure you kind of clean that up for me if I'm not getting that right there, Michael. But Matt Patricia now has emerged as the quote-unquote favorite to be the offensive play caller here for the New England Patriots. Patricia's known for being a defensive guy. I believe he started his coaching on offense, but made his name as a defensive coordinator, then was the head coach of the Detroit Lions before returning to Foxborough. But what do you make of this, Patricia, potentially calling plays for that offense in Mac Jones in year two? I don't buy it at all. I, I don't see how an offensive line coach can call plays. It's hard enough to get those five guys to play good, to make sure they handle the protections, to make sure that everything's copacetic in the run game, to make sure they're doing their job. You're focused on them. You're not seeing the game from from above the stadium. You're seeing the game from the end zone level. So it's impossible to focus on that and then call plays. Now, if Matt Patricia was the line coach and there was another line coach that was really handled, they have Billy Yates there, but I mean – like he's the he's the guy coaching them, and when they come to the sideline, he's got to go over and spend all his time making sure they understand it. He's not gonna who's sitting with Mac Jones. That's the key guy. That's the guy that's got to call the plays because on Monday through Saturday, that personal relationship between the quarterback and the play caller manifests itself on Sunday. I like this. I don't like that. You know, against this look, I think we should do this. Okay, do you like this play? No, I don't. I mean, that's a one-on-one relationship that is not just limited to veteran players. It's limited to whoever plays the position. And as the play caller, you never want to put that guy in an uncomfortable position. You never want to give him something that he's not comfortable. And so you have to have constant – how can Matt Patricia coach the line and those eight, ten guys he's got to coach and then have a developer relationship with the quarterback? It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I think it's just somebody throwing stuff out there. 
and I've and I wrote this for the Daily Coach uh, last week. I mean, Belichick just doesn't give away titles and jobs. You got to earn it. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think he's going to mix allow somebody to call plays that he hasn't seen call plays. So I think this preseason we'll see a lot of that. We'll see who's calling the plays and how it works. If you were to guess today, who do you think the play caller is going to be for the New England Patriots? I think it's going to be Joe Judge. I think it has to be Joe Judge. He's coaching the quarterback. It has to be Joe Judge because he's seeing the game on all three levels. Matt Patricia's only watching the game on one level. That's the offensive line. The quarterback coach sees the game on level one. That's the offensive line. He sees the game on level two. That's the linebackers. He sees the game on level three. Do you think if I went to any offensive line coach in the league during a game and said, how much cover seven are they playing today? He'd have no idea. He wouldn't even care. He wouldn't even give a shit. He could care less. Cover seven, I don't give a shit. That three technique's kicking my ass. You know, they're playing it over front. They're playing it under. Oh, we got this, you know, they, they, they're, they're getting this double eagle look. We got, like, that's all they care about, and that's their job. That's all they care about. They want to do that. That's what they're best at doing. Yeah, he can identify the Mike linebacker. That's, that's where we start with the offensive yeah. line coach. Uh, Joe Judge, though, has a special teams background. At least that's what he was doing before he took over as the New York Giants head coach. Any concerns there with him being a potential play caller in New England? Oh, I think you have to, a lot of concern. Well, the one year he was in New England before he went to the Jet Giants, he, he was the wide receiver coach. So he had some time there, but he wasn't really calling the plays. I mean, obviously he was on the headset during the game. Look, play calling in the NFL is hard. It's not Madden yeah. in your basement, Femi. Like it ain't, you know, it, it, it's <laughs> about, it's, it's, it's deliberate. It's, you've got to be, you've got to set things up. You've got to understand it. You know, even though the hash marks are in the middle of the field, where you want the ball to set up the play on what hash mark is critical. And that's why I've always found great play callers, great play callers are usually math. They have some math background in them. Josh McDaniels is a math major. You know, great play callers see the game in three dimensions. You know, and mm-hmm. so they can really understand how to set things up. And it's a little bit of, it's a chess game. It's a chess board. And you're moving pieces. It's a hard, hard job. It's not as easy as it looks. You know, in the 60s, when Johnny Unitas led, or in the 58, the, the greatest game ever, when he brought him back, there was he called every play. That 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 ain't happening today. Yeah, that's to call plays and to also have to execute them. To me, it feels like that's next level football genius. There, I know you mentioned a while back one of our first episodes we did together about how play callers would almost watch college football Saturday nights and kind of go through a script with their own plays of, okay, here's what I do in this situation. Here's what I do. So many levels of complexity to offensive play calling in the NFL to where it's like you said, it's not a pick it up and just go and run with it type of job. No. And you know what we don't get, and you know who doesn't get enough credit. It's just the way the game's set up by the, you know, because we're such an offensive uh, minded society that the mm-hmm. defensive play caller really makes a difference. How yeah. you call the defense, how you set up the defense, what you do in the third quarter to adjust your defense to, to then give the offense more problems. I mean, we don't talk enough about a great defensive play caller who has the right blitz against the right front or anticipates the right boot, blitz into the bootleg. I mean, those guys don't get enough love and pray. I think Dennis Allen does a great job with that. I think he's one of the best mm-hmm. play callers on defense that you could find because he seems to always have a good handle on what's the next play. Yeah. The, to quote my favorite movie, Training Day, it's chess, not checkers. And yep. all these awesome play callers eventually become head coaches to where we can talk and rank about those head coaches. Pro football focus. We're going to discuss it next. Their top 10 head coaches, the glaring omissions, and the guys who don't really belong on that list. Next year, this is the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi. 
All right, Michael, the people have been waiting for your thoughts here on the pro football <laughs> focus top 10 head coaches in the NFL. So now here's their criteria because I read the article a couple days okay. ago and I wanted to understand what they were using to get the results that they got. And they pretty much did two different things. They tried to account for a team's talent using salary cap. So they're using what those contracts were at the given positions to justify, okay, if these guys are paid at premium prices, we can say that they have some level of talent. Then they also tried to predict where the coaches would fill in by using the Pythagorean wins estimate there. And basically it was defined by how much a team scored or allowed using the benchmark of 348 points in a season here. So the top 10 list is as follows, and we can almost count this down 10 to 1 here. We have the graphic up, but Mike McCarthy, Dallas Cowboys head coach at 10, Frank Reich, 9, Mike Vrabel, 8, Kyle Shanahan, 7, Matt LaFleur, 6, Pete Carroll at 5, Cliff Kingsbury at 4, Andy Reid, 3, John Harbaugh, 2, and Bill Belichick, number 1. I'll let you take it away. Well, I mean, look, I, I don't, you know, I don't understand. I, I think it's really great that they have a criteria. I think that's one step better than the Hall of Fame voters do for coaches. <laughs> they don't have yeah. a criteria, right? So, it, you know, it's all subjective. You know, George Seifert can't get into the Hall of Fame, even though he's won two Super Bowls. I think he's won two or three. I think he might have won three. I think he's won three Super Bowls. Seifert's won three Super Bowls. He's got a 65, 64% win percentage, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, but he can't get in. He's won 114 games. He's lost 62. He can't get in. Okay? So, you know, Mike, Mike, Mike Shanahan can't get in. He hasn't gotten in yet. Marty Schottenheimer is only one of nine people on planet Earth that have won 200 games. Okay? He can't get in. 61 win percentage. 61% win percentage. He can't get in. Because there's no criteria, right? Mm -hmm. There's no criteria. Is the criteria you got to win a Super Bowl to get in? Well, George Allen didn't win one. He's in. You know, do you have to go to the playoffs every year? You know, George Allen got in, but, it, it, you know, he didn't go to the playoffs every year. So it's a moving target. It's based on a popularity contest. So I give Pro Football Focus credit for at least having a criteria. I don't understand their criteria, but they have one. So once we – if what criteria doesn't have Mike Tomlin in a top five coach? Mike Tomlin has, is a 64% win percentage coach. He has got 154 wins. He's got 85 losses and two ties. He's won a Super Bowl. He is a lock, a lock to go into the Hall of Fame. When I wrote this new book, which I, I still can't come up with the title yet, and I appreciate everybody tweeting to yeah, me we, about yeah, it. Yeah, we got a lot of those. You know, uh, and, and some are great. I, the publisher is going to have to weed them out. But Mike, Mike, Mike Tomlin is a based on my criteria, he's a complete lock. He meets every criteria that I set forth, and I won't get to avoid the criteria because I want you to read the book, but he, he's a lock to go in the Hall of Fame, a complete lock. How is he not in the top 10? Like, that team he coached last year was horrible with one of the worst quarterbacks in all of football. Like, how – and he made the playoffs with a quarterback with no arm strength. How, how is he not there? How is Sean McVay not there? Now, Sean McVay is a 67% winning percentage coach. He's been to the Super Bowl twice. He's won one, lost one. Now, yes, he's got talent. Okay. But think about this, Femi. I wrote about this today about, you know, Cooper Cup just getting a new contract, right? He got Cooper Cup the ball 75. Cooper Cup's percentage of targets to catches was 75%, which was the third best amongst receivers in the National Football League. Remarkable. Like, Stefan Diggs is only 62%. And yet, and he had a 81 first downs, the most he's ever had in his career. He averaged 40 in his first year. What does that tell you? He gets the ball to the guy even though he's double covered. 
Yeah. And he's not on this list. Mike Vrabel's playing with Mike T- with Ryan Tannehill, and he, all he could do is come in eighth. I, I, I mean, I, I, how does this list? Cliff Kingsbury's the fourth best coach in the National Football League. <laughs> I mean, John Gulley said this before we got started. <laughs> he said two of the guys on this top ten list might get fired. Here's another one, okay? And I'll let you take the floor. I love Kyle Shanahan. I think Kyle Shanahan is one of the best the offensive minds in football. He's creative. Mm-hmm. He's very good. He's three games below 500. He's went to one Super Bowl. He's a great offensive coach. Is he a great head coach? I, I, I think you have to answer that question honestly. I love him. I think he's really good. I think he's becoming a better head coach, but he's three games below 500 as a, as a head coach. Now, if you want to put him in the, in the top three of offensive coordinators, go ahead and do it. He's right there. Yeah. yeah. To, to me, the when we got to four, we talked about this before the show, and I was reading the article, and I was like, okay, the top three – I can get with that. Belichick, number one, no explanation needed there. I have Reed, number two, Harbaugh, three. They have it reversed. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to kill them. Harbaugh's their second guy. He's my third guy. There's nothing to kill them for. But Cliff Kingsbury, to me, is the one where I look at it. I'm like, okay, now we're off the rails with Cliff Kingsbury. The fact that he is that high up. And the justification for Kingsbury was that outside of Murray and Hopkins, they don't have a whole lot of offensive talent based off of the contracts and all the metrics that they use there. But still, to me, I mean, this guy has faltered every step of the way in the second half, going all the way back to Texas Tech. He's never been a winning caliber head coach there. Maybe as an offensive play caller, he can get things going there. But in terms of being the actual head coach and the CEO of the entire operation, he doesn't move me in that regard. So I didn't understand Cliff Kingsbury being at number four to me there. Um, Tomlin, though, I thought is – I think Tomlin's probably top five, like number five. The fact that he Tomlin. was able to – the fact that he was able to take Ben Roethlisberger the last two years to the playoffs is incredible. And that's what is kind of docking them in their metric because Ben Roethlisberger had such a high-paying contract. So it's like, well, you have a high-priced quarterback, but – that guy was being overpaid. He sucks. Yeah, exactly. He, he was being overpaid. It's like I'm coaching. It's like the, the head coach of the New York Giants. You know, you got a <laughs> shitty team, and you're over the cap. That's not your fault. Yeah. You know, you didn't you didn't put a thing. I mean, look, he I, of the top 100 players in in all of football, I think it, you know Joe Gibbs to me is one of the greatest coaches of all time. He won 154 games during his era. When he came back the second time, he wasn't as good because the game had kind of advanced on him. But the fact that he won three Super Bowls without a marquee quarterback, with Stan Humphreys, with Doug Williams, and and Mark Rippon, I mean, that's really remarkable. You know, Marty Schottenheimer never really had an elite quarterback, and he still won 200 games. He still won 200 games, and he never had an elite Is it his fault? I, I don't know. You know, I mean, the fact that Tomlin was able to milk – I mean, most coaches – would have been bitching and screaming to have to play Ben last mm-hmm. year, and yet he did and made the playoffs. I mean, come on. Like, I don't under, You're using the payroll, so you're assuming now that the payroll's correct. Yep. Like, you're not even valuing overpaid contracts. Like, the Rams' contracts are basically, they give it to th- four or five guys. They're all great, and they all play great, and that's why they play, they win. But, you know, McVay still has to maneuver some pieces around. He has to keep his team healthy, which I think is really hard. In fact, he's not on the list. Let me ask you this question. If Matt LaFleur and Mike Vrabel were to change sidelines and you give Mike Vrabel Aaron Rodgers and you give Matt LaFleur Ryan Tannehill, well, we've already seen that with Matt LaFleur. When he was in Tennessee, they were the 28th-ranked offense in football. How is Matt LaFleur a better head coach than Mike Vrabel? Come on, this is a joke. Like, who – 
I, I don't care what anybody like, – like, <clears throat> I would be embarrassed to put Cliff Kingsbury for. I like Cliff as a human being. Mm-hmm. Wonderful guy. Seems like a great But guy. even he would admit he's not a better coach than some of these guys on this <laughs> list. Uh, the, the guy, Pete Carroll, at number five is where he's at. And I, I was talking with Stephen Bond about it. I was like, gosh, Pete Carroll at five, that seems kind of high for me because I think we everybody gets Pete Carroll wrong. And I think that Pete Carroll is the perfect example of why it's hard to evaluate head coaches because – I think the things that Pete Carroll struggles at are the things that we all see on TV, whether it's mismanaging challenges or mismanaging the clock or not knowing when to go for it on fourth down or whatnot. But the things that Pete Carroll is elite at are the things that are behind closed doors. And that's building a culture and making sure guys want to play for you, making sure that they're motivated. And that as a coach is hard to quantify because we don't see it. We don't know what the impact is from a numbers standpoint, but it's, Definitely matters because these guys could have quit on Pete Carroll long ago, but his message is still fresh, even though he's been there since 2009 or 2010, well, look, I believe. The, guy, the guy's been to two Super Bowls. He, he, he's taken teams to the playoffs outside of Seattle. He took New England to the playoffs, right? He's got 152 career wins in the league. He's got a, he's a 59.3% win percentage coach. He's coached 16 years. You know, he meets the criteria that I set forth to get in the Hall of Fame. He mm-hmm. meets it. Now, do I think he screws up things? Yeah, I do. I think yeah. we all do. Yeah, I screw up things every day. Yeah, nobody's you know, perfect. Do I, think he, do I think he makes bad challenges? Yeah, I think so. I think there's, you know, but nobody's perfect other than the, the, the analytical community. But, you know, I, I think he, you know, do I think he's the fifth, fifth best coach in the league? I think his teams always are hard to play. And I think he does mm-hmm. a good job. And, he's, and he was, you know, he brought this defense that a lot of people are using in the league that came from his study. And I think you got to give him credit for that. I, I think you definitely do. You know, I, I think there's no doubt about that. I just think, to me, I don't understand how you can have this list and have Mike Vrabel, you know, as low as he is, and not have McVay and Tomlin on the list. Yeah, yeah. Like but, that, to me, whatever your criteria is, like Andy Reid's a 63% winning percentage coach. 63%, right? Mike Tomlin is 64%. They both have won one Super Bowl. They, mm-hmm. Andy Reid's coached 23 years. Mike Tomlin's coached 15. Like, like seriously, Mike Tomlin is the 20th highest-ranked winning percentage coach in all of football. Sean McVay is 10th at 67%. Now, he doesn't have enough games. He only has five seasons. Yeah. But how do you not account for that? Like, like at some point, we are evaluating this whole thing. And the criteria of, of weighted – some coaches, unfortunately, like some of the best coaching jobs are the jobs that you don't have a quarterback. When you manufacture a team, I thought Belichick's best coaching job was two years ago with Cam Newton. He didn't make the playoffs. I thought it was one of his best coaching jobs. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And pro football focus, and I'm not sure where you stand on them. And I, I think they're healthy for the discourse because they make you think about things in different ways. But it, this is a very, very spicy list that has its holes, as we've outlined here. Well, they, and, they, they, they sell themselves as an analytic, but somebody has to grade the film. Mm-hmm. Like, this is somebody, there's an, a, there is a subjective area to what they do. They have people grading the film based on the criteria they set forth based on analytics. So when they evaluate quarterbacks, you know, they are evaluating based on the criteria, and someone's watching it. So it comes back down to evaluate the evaluator. It comes back to that. It's not, it's not baseball. Baseball is pure analytics, right? You throw all this shit into the computer, 
and the numbers come out and people analyze the data. It's like this bullshit that's going on in the NBA. Shot quality. Their <laughs> shot quality was extremely high. Will Hill had the guy on his podcast uh, on the New York City Betcast. He had him on, and the guy the guy looked like he was 12 years old. He looked like he's, he was going to be Dominic's going to hang out and babysit Dominic. I mean, like, so anyway, he's in here, and he's like, okay, if I have a 30-foot open shot, that's a bad shot for me. I can't make it. If Steph Curry has a 30-foot open shot, that's a shot, great shot. So you can't have shot quality without the shooter being involved in the number. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all, like, all I, I mean, like, Draymond Green's <laughs> corner three is a bad shot. He can't make it. But if you give if you give somebody else that corner three, they make it. Like, it, it's all predicated on who is the guy. Coaches yeah. don't look at. Oh, coaches never look at. Oh, I can't let that that corner three be open because you know that. No, they look at like who's the shooter. Yeah, that's the the only thing I'll say about shot quality is that I think it was built to absolutely make betters furious so that you can say, oh, my gosh, I handicapped the game correctly, but I still lost. But shot quality. Told it, me it has I made no a good merit. Handicap. It has to be able to be. You've got to be. It's like Belichick says all the time. The analytical people say, OK, we need to be an 11 personnel to throw the football. OK, great. All right. Let's get an 11. But who's going to block fucking J.J. Watt over here? We have nobody to block him. So let's get an 11. Like maybe we get an eleven this week when JJ Watt's not over there humming down the down your throat, or you know we don't and we they got two edges. You go play the Raiders and you got Max Crosby and you got Chandler Jones and you got no tight end to block either guy or help out in protection and you're in eleven. Like I, like it makes no sense. Like every week is predicated based on what you can do, and then sometimes when you look at these numbers, like like okay, like let's take Tampa Bay for example. Tampa Bay was the best run defense in the league. Mm-hmm. Their passing numbers were horrible. They weren't great. You know why? Because people didn't even try to run the ball on them. They said it was worthless. So they they threw it more. Their attempts were the highest in the league. So it's all cause and effect. And if you don't put the player in, how do you not? If you don't put the team and the player in, and analytics and data driven, how do you evaluate it? Yeah, no, it's not everything can be accounted for, which is why we love sports. I mean, like the things being quantified makes it interesting from a talking point uh, point of view here. But the unquantifiable is what makes sports unpredictable. And it's why we love it. Just to clean things up. Well, before we go, I mean, Mm -hmm. how can we talk about the top 10 without bringing up the great Brandon Staley? I mean, how the fuck can we do this? I mean, it's a complete (laughs) crime. We should be arrested and sentenced to Attica. I mean, he was supposedly the best coach in the history of pro football focus last year. Here's the perfect example. I am not against analytics. I am not. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important. But I think analytics have to be married into players, schemes, and talent. I think that's important. Like, not all fourth downs are the same fourth down. Not all third downs are the same. So when you just arbitrarily go for every fourth down, that's not analytics. You're just going for it. That's a philosophy. (laughs) Right? And so, like, like, he cost his team a playoff. And I don't understand how he can't be involved here. When they said he was the best, co- one of the he was the best coach in the league last year. Like, what happened to that? Here's what they wrote about Brandon Staley, who checked in at number twelve for the folks keeping score at home. "Quote: The former defensive coordinator has done a strong job embracing analytical ideas and done a respectable job overseeing strong offensive outputs. However, 
For his success to continue, his defensive output will need to follow suit. So Staley's got to clean up his side of the ball. He's the defensive he coach. <laughs> they had the worst defense in football last year. Like, that's his specialty. They were 32nd in the league in points allowed. He was a disaster in red zone. He was a disaster. <laughs> How he's 12th, is he ahead of Tomlin, too? He is one spot ahead of Tomlin, who comes in at 13th. Jesus 13. Christ. I mean, throw the thing in the trash, please. <laughs> throw it in the fucking trash. Uh, I'm done. I'm done. You pissed me off for the day. <laughs> Sean McVay is number 11 there for the Rams. We talked about Sean McVay being outside that top 10. We're going to talk about his team. How do you on give this side. any credit? How does anybody <laughs> give this any credibility? Seriously. Sean McVay is in my top five. He's not in PFF's top five. Let's talk Rams with the GM Shuffle podcast here coming up next. All right, Michael, we've gone this entire offseason without really deep diving into the mm. defending reigning Super Bowl champion, L.A. Rams. You wrote about the Rams today for VEASAN.com. I read that article before we got this thing started here, and I thought it was a really good point that you made off the top about Pat Riley. We'll get into that in just a bit here uh, and make that connection. But the Rams recently, this week, made a couple of big contract extensions. They're all-world defensive tackle Aaron Donald, who we talked about last week, saying that they needed to give him his flowers. Well, they did. A three-year extension worth $95 million. So no retirement for Aaron Donald. He's back in the saddle. And then early Wednesday, they give Cooper Cup, the reigning Super Bowl MVP, a contract extension as well. Cup will now receive that's a three-year extension to make him now $110 million over the next five years. He's now one of the highest-paid receivers in the NFL. But you thought this was a decision that the Rams had to do, not just from a football standpoint, from also a people standpoint as well. Well, well, I mean, look, the receiver market went bonkers when Christian Kirk got the deal and everybody got paid. And I think Cup, you know, Cup has been a good player up until last year. He was a sensational player last year. Even when Robert Woods went down, he they got him. He had 169 targets. He had an unbelievable amount of catches. I mean, it's remarkable. He had a 75, almost a 75% success rate on, on targets. Why do I harp on that so much? Because it, it tells you a couple things. It tells you, A, the guy's open. B, even when he's open, he makes plays. C, you know, he catches the football, which is somewhat important for receivers. And, and, and more than anything, uh, you know, he's able to get the ball when he's still there. Everybody knows he's getting the ball. I mean, mm -hmm. him and Devontae Adams, they were getting the ball. I mean, Stephon Diggs is only at 63% uh, catch percentage. Uh, that's still good. I mean, running backs and tight ends are usually in the 80s. You know, some running backs, James Conner was at, at, at almost 95. He only had three balls wow. thrown to him that he didn't catch. But to me, when you're a receiver and you know you're getting the ball, it was well-earned. And Donald, to me, is a throwback player in the sense that there was an era of football where the tackles dominated the sport. They really did. I mean, and that was because the offensive linemen couldn't pass protect with their hands and people were running the ball. So the Joe Greens, the Bob Lillies, you know, every Allen Pitt, you had to have great tackles. And Donald has brought that back. And, and his ability to play down after down at a high level is remarkable. Yeah, and I think the point that you make in your article, I don't want to give the whole thing away. Make sure to check that out at vsin.com. Michael writes a weekly column talking all things NFL. But the Pat Riley and what he talks about with defending champions. Now, in the NBA, we see a lot more back-to-back -back successful defenses of titles. We don't see as much as the NFL, the Patriots being the last team to do it back in 2004. But the disease of me is, I think, from a sports standpoint and just a societal standpoint, I think is a, such a fascinating topic of discussion that the Rams are trying to prevent the disease of me. Can you explain to the folks what that is? Well, it is because every whenever you win a title, everybody feels like there's more sense of importance, you know, all the way down to, you know, the auxiliary staff. Uh, we made a difference. We're not getting compensated. 
The Rams have, have a unique thing, and, and all of us, and me included, have been predicting cap doom for them mm-hmm. because of the way they've spent money, and yet they keep getting away with it because they keep pushing money out in future years. But they only have, you know, the, they pay the players that, that matter on Sunday. And what makes the Rams so unique, and credit to Sean McVay for this, is the fact that his best players always play their best. I mean, they just do. I mean, Donald didn't have – I mean, Donald, you know, comparative to where he was four years ago when he had like – uh, you know, 81 hurries. I mean, you know, he, he's still one of the most dominating. I mean, he's had 23 career forced fumbles in his in his in his in his in his, in his career. 23 times he's forced the ball out when he tackles you. It's yeah. pretty damn impressive. So you know, they play their best, and because they don't have a lot of veteran guys, they have a bunch of rookies on contracts and young players. They can't really. The disease of me can only come from those stars, and they took care of them. Now, other teams, they have that. You know, I want my money. I want this. Mm-hmm. I'm unhappy. I mean, even bad teams have the disease of me. You know, but when you win, you really have to – Every you become the target and everybody wants you, so you've got to be even better. Yeah. yeah. I think that goes to the cultural standpoint that we're talking about with Sean McVay. And the last segment of not only is he a great play caller, but he's also really good from a culture standpoint. And that entire organization has made sure that the culture of that Rams team – is always at a top-notch level to where they don't have stuff like that infiltrate what they're trying to accomplish. Real quick, though, because a lot of fans of other teams see the Rams make all these big moves. They trade for Von Miller last year. They're signing all these guys' extensions, signing Allen Robinson at free agency, even though they're winning all these games. And they're saying, what the hell's going on? I thought the salary cap would prevent things like this, these great teams from loading up. And now the discussion on Twitter is, wow, is the salary cap even real? To that, you say what? I say that you're looking at the contracts wrong. I mean, I think I think like when we saw the Bobby the Bobby Wagner contract come in from the Rams, everybody thought that, you know, oh my god, look at they paid Bobby Wagner all this money, you know, and and basically what the, Bobby Wagner, you know, he's going to make a million five. He, they gave him a bunch of signing bonus money and they spread it out over 5 years. And so his cap number this year is just 25. That's a really low that's a, I mean Troy Hill's cap number is 25. You know, and so that they have done a good job that the, the, the reporting of the contract is always different than the actual contract. And so when you look at the Rams and you look at their team, they have two high price. They have about five, four high price players, Stafford, Cup, Ramsey, and Donald. And then everybody else, they kind of have, you know, they have a bunch of guys making a million, under $2 million. Now, some of them they've given bonus money to, like Leonard Floyd, but for the most part, they've done a good job of monitoring that, and their owner's been willing to spend cash over cap. That's been the key. Mm-hmm. He's spending cash over cap. How much? I don't know. But when you put the Donald and the Cup contracts in to go along with what they did with Stafford, it's pr- probably fairly significant. But they don't have a lot of those middle-level players. I mean, Ashawn Robinson makes six and a half in paragraph five. Rob ha- Haverstein makes seven and a half. Those are, and, and Higby makes 6.2. Those are the only three players who make above $2 million in paragraph five. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a stars and not-so-expensive guys for the L.A. Rams. Who, Sean McVay, congratulations to him. Uh, post-congratulations for his wedding. He just got married as of last week, and so it's all And he got paid, great. too. Uh, he got a new contract. He, he got paid. So <laughs> Everyone's getting you know, taken Now, maybe he can make the top ten next year. Only uh, maybe he could <laughs> wish for it. Maybe, you know, we got to get on Tomlin and tell him to get better. You know, he's got to work harder. Well, now that they got the Donald and Cup deal, now he's going to get dropped to 16 because those contracts are too high. Uh, but that does it for the podcast this week here, Michael. Next week, I want to do Sopranos in 60 next week because I feel finished season one 
and I have thoughts, oh, but great. we're out of time. Boca, you did not lie, is a very, very good episode. But thank you to DraftKings. Thank you to Vison. Thank you to you, pass Michael. Pass the peppers, Femi. We, pass we, the peppers. Yeah, pass the peppers. <laughs> Uncle Junior, man, he was just, he was, he didn't want that to get out there. Um, but yep. thank you to all the folks who listen. As always, thank you to our producer, John Goulet, filling in for Stephen Bond today. And we'll talk to you guys soon.